Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Stuart, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Do you mind giving us kind of a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. I mean, my, I guess my bio, as you've uh, you, you noted in, in our correspondence previously, is, is a little bit all over the place. So I'll just like get, make it as brief as I can. So I started out with a, a music degree where I majored in classical guitar performance. Um, then, like a lot of liberal arts majors who aren't sure what to do with their lives, I ended up going to law school, practiced law for a few years, and decided I didn't want to bill hours for the rest of my life. Um, so switched yet again, uh, did a PhD in education policy, um, and was thinking about going into academia. And then uh, a really cool opportunity opened up to work for the what was then called the Lauren John Arnold Foundation, uh, which was just starting up uh, in Houston. Uh, so moved to Houston and took a, a VP of research job uh, that I worked at for about nine years. And uh, in that job, did a ton of work on evidence-based policy and uh, sponsoring academic research uh, and on trying to improve the scientific process, improve si- reproducibility. Um, so that that's, that's became became a key theme for uh, for the work that I like to do. Uh, so left left Arnold Arnold Ventures as it's now called um, last year, and then worked with Patrick Collison uh, to set up uh, a small nonprofit uh, think tank, I guess you could call it, that uh, we're calling the Good Science Project, uh, with the goal of uh, trying to improve the funding and practice of science. So that's about as brief as I can make it. <laughs> I love it. No, that, that's that's super concise. That, that was perfectly delivered, Stuart. Um, I, I'm curious, how did you first get interested in these problems of science? Like, like what's going on with science? Was it in the PhD program? Was it at Arnold Ventures when you like, did you stumble upon it? Was there like, was it just a gradual thing where you just can't really quite remember? I can remember an exact conversation where this really hit the radar screen. Um, so I was sitting with John Arnold um, in mid-2012. I uh, had just started working there and we had a conversation about evidence-based policy. And then we had both independently in the news seen a controversy over a Yale psychology professor whose name is John Barge, which is spelled B-A-R-G-H, uh, but it's pronounced Barge. Um, he had done some some studies that had failed to replicate, and it had become a controversy because he wrote a couple of, I think it was two, uh, kind of angry columns on this website. I think it was psychologytoday.com. Uh, where he accused the people replicating his studies of uh, basically not knowing what they were doing and being incompetent. I think he's used words like empty headed, uh, something like that. And so it became this controversy in the psychology community, you know, like what's the value of replication? Does this work stand up? Is John Barge being, you know, over the top rude? And anyway, John Earl and I had both seen this and thought, well, this is interesting. Like what, um, you know, is there anything more to this? So I started digging around and it turned out that there were people in multiple fields from medicine to economics to psychology who had been talking about this problem of replicability and, uh, you know, whether we're really doing sound science or whether we're being like overly influenced by the publication process and the need to just crank out positive findings at all costs and so forth. 
And so that became an important issue because, you know, the Arnolds were trying to set up a foundation uh, that revolves around evidence-based policy in a number of areas from criminal justice, to education, health, et cetera. Um, but if, if your focus is evidence-based policy and you can't really trust the evidence, uh, that's, that's a big problem. A problem. Right? So, so then, then it became a mission to try to figure out, well, how do we know what, what evidence we can trust and, uh, you know, how can we help to try to improve the, the evidentiary process and the process of research and science? Gotcha. So yeah, it was that conversation on that day. <laughs> th- that was a conversation that kind of, kind of drove it. I, I'm curious. Um, so, so, you, you know, you, you're trying to, you know, in that kind of um, interventions, you know, based on, on, you know, solid, like uh, research and findings, you know, at, at Arnold Ventures at the time. Um, I, I, I'm curious, we, I, I have the sneaking suspicion, or at least I did, I, I haven't followed the replication crisis super closely. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm not as, as well versed in it. But I had the sneaking suspicion that, you know, we called it in maybe social psychology first because it's kind of, uh, it's super legible. Like anybody can kind of read kind of a social psychology study and probably kind of understand what's going on. Whereas if it's mm-hmm. like analytical chemistry, you know, I don't know. Like, I, you know, if you don't have mm-hmm. expertise in the field, it's harder to kind of get there. Um, I guess my question is, is um, are some fields worse than others? And is it like a wide range or are they all kind of bad or, or some of them good, some mm. of them not as bad. And, and what's your sense of that? I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, of course there are many, many different scientific and academic fields. So I've not, I can't claim to know all of them equally well. I do think social psychology, social psychology in particular um, is one area that uh, was both problematic as you're pointing out, but also easier to replicate. Um, so, and so that, that matters. Um, so, so the the study I was talking about with John Barge, uh, you may have heard of it, or you know, some folks may have heard of it, but I'll just re- repeat quickly what that study was about, um, you know, for purposes of the conversation. So he he basically it was a kind of priming study where he was priming uh, students to have this like concept in their head without really telling them what he was doing. So he would have he brought students into the lab. And he, he would have them on some pretext read over lists of words and try to remember them or, or something like that. And for ha- for some of the students, you know, they were being experimentally evaluated. Uh, some of the words on the list would uh, somehow relate to old age. Okay, and so the idea was this gets them kind of unconsciously or subconsciously thinking about being old. And so then, what the real point of the experiment was, he had somebody timing the speed at which they walked down the hall as they left the room, right, where they read this list of words. And the students who had read the words that in some way related to being old uh, ended up walking more slowly down the hall. Um, so, so you're right. This is a very catchy finding. You know, anyone yeah. can kind of understand it. And it's also easy to replicate. I mean, as because other people tried to do it and said, okay, this, this is something that you could do in an afternoon, right? <laughs> so um, it's fairly straightforward. And then they found that it didn't really make a difference, um, which actually it shouldn't be all that surprising. I mean, imagine if we were that like susceptible to like everything that we came across, you know, we read a word of old age and then all of a sudden we're like hunched over decrepit, like can't walk Maybe. anymore. And then read, read, read about Michael Jordan and we're flying down the hall, right? It's, it'd be, it'd be quite, quite an odd world if we were that manipulable. Um, but anyway, social psychology is, uh, you know, for that reason, like, as you say, easier to understand a lot of the studies and then easier, more straightforward to replicate them. And so it's, Therefore, a lot easier to then kind of figure out what is the status of this field. Now, cancer biology, uh, by contrast, is a field that also has some problems with replicability, but it's a lot harder to replicate studies. And I can point to 
um, a, a particular project that I funded while at Arnold, which is called the Rep uh, Reproducibility Project in Cancer Biology. And uh, I might get a few little details wrong, but basically I think the original project was supposed to cost around one and a half million. Um, and it was gonna try to replicate 50 cancer biology experiments over a period of like four or five years. And that, that was gonna be the project. Well, we ended up having to kick in some more money. I think it was around five, $600,000. Um, they ended up cutting back the number of experiments they were replicating to around, I forget what the final number was, maybe about 20. Um, and the project took eight years. And so the final results were just published earlier this year. So you might think, well, that looks like it was just uh, inefficient in every possible way. You know, it cost more, took longer and did less. But the whole problem there is that it's just it's like virtually impossible to replicate, even to start replicating these cancer biology experiments. Because what they found in every single case was they would read the article and they would say, huh, there's a lot of missing steps, a lot of missing information. Like we can't tell what they did at this point. They had, they had to have done, they have to have made a particular choice. So anyway, they have to go back to the original labs um, and oftentimes the original labs weren't particularly happy or cooperative about like working with them and saying what they actually did in the experiment. Um, but when they would finally get the information about how did you actually do this experiment and what kind of materials and antibodies or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, what did you use? Um, the, the answer invariably was always like, well, here's a, a list of, of stuff you have to buy that's tw it's twice as long and costs twice as much as you thought. So anyway, this whole process just took an extraordinary amount of time and money and effort. And, uh, you know, in some cases they just couldn't like even get off the ground to replicate experiments. So I guess the point is like that, that whole experience showed that, I mean, it's just really hard to even try to replicate stuff. So it makes you wonder, okay, what, what is going on in that field? Like, because barely anyone can even try to replicate it unless they have a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of patience. Uh, so yeah, it's not, not necessarily a good sign. I do think there are other areas, you know, uh, physics and cosmology, at least uh, from what little I know of it, that have more of a strong culture of replication. You know, if someone says they found like evidence of some cosmic wave or something, you know, other physicists will be trying to independently analyze the data. Um, and so I feel like there's more, more of a culture of, of that sort of, you know, activity, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's widely variable, I guess, across different fields, but it's, there probably are a lot of fields that are, are problematic and probably some that aren't really even aware of it or addressing the issue yet. Gotcha. So, so it does make, it does make sense. There, there's some areas, it's, there's some, um, areas where it is easier just to replicate generally, just because of like yeah. certain, you know, like you don't have to run these massive experience experiments that require all these compounds and et cetera. Um, um so it's kind of variable uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious, Stuart, um, you know, if you had to grade humanities uh, science today, like science today, how would you grade it? Are we doing okay? Are we doing really well, really mm. badly, like somewhere in the middle? And it just like kind of, it depends like way too much and it's very difficult to tell. What do you think? I mean, it's probably, it depends a lot on the context and the, the specific field you're talking about. Overall, I mean, let's, let's give it a B minus. I mean, we're, there are lots of areas of science and technology that are coming up with amazing discoveries and advances. Um, but I still think there are lots of ways that we could do better. Um, our, our scientific system, particularly in biomedicine, um, it's more and more difficult for younger people uh, to, to get a foothold within the system. Um, and they're, even when they get a foothold, they're tied down. You know, they end up spending half their time probably on bureaucracy and writing more proposals. 
um, yeah, endless endless numbers of proposals because oftentimes like the funding rate at something someplace like the National Cancer Institute might be around nine or ten percent. So. 90, 90 plus percent of the proposals are not getting funded. So that's a lot of work being, you know, to comply with all the requirements of, uh, you know, the, the information that you have to provide. And then, yeah, you don't get it funded. So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that we're you know, basically tying scientists' hands um, and that we could, we could probably do a lot better. Got it. How, how bad is it? And, and can you talk about this a little bit? This, this fact that, you know, the average age of, you know, NIH grant winners has gone up so much over time since like the 1980s or so. Right. Yeah, that's I think it's uh, it, it's definitely a problem. Um, and NIH is aware of it and they keep trying to expand like kind of early career grants. But it, it still seems like you know kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what they could be doing. Um, now, I do think that you know the aging of uh, the population, with the baby boomers getting older, might be part of a function of this. So I was just uh, you know looking the other day at the top-grossing uh, musical tours uh, over the past forty years, and around 1980, 81, the the top-grossing music tour was the Rolling Stones. Okay, so. Then you look at the top grossing musical tour uh, last year, also the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so, you know, the Rolling Stones are just perennially popular and, uh, you know, they, they tour a lot, evidently. So um, so there's a case where, like, you know, the the exact same people are you know, <laughs> getting older, but also making a lot of money in the process. So I think probably there's some of that that's happened within the NIH ecosystem as well, that there were people, baby boomers, who were like around 30, 30-ish in 1980. And they they became successful and they built a reputation and a career. And now because of, you know, the, you can't mandate that people retire at 65. Like now they're 70 and they're still cranking away at their lab. And so it's probably a, literally some of the same people, you know, so it's not, it's not so much necessarily that NIH is biased towards elderly people now, as opposed to 30 year olds in 1980. It's probably there's, they're funding some of the same people. There's a lot of kind of path dependence in, in who they fund, you know, success, Breeds more success, you know. Like the, so, you you get an NIH grant at age thirty in nineteen eighty, and you just like, you're you're kind of set. Uh, that's what I suspect is is part of what's going on. Um, but all of that said, I mean, I do wonder if there are ways to uh, kind of gently encourage people to to retire and to make room for for younger people because um, you know there's a famous saying that science advances one funeral at a time. And there's, you know, science, uh, people who have looked into this and they found evidence that like when a very prominent scientist in a field dies, uh, that there's that there, there's kind of I mean, explosion would be too strong. But there there are more ideas that crop up in that per person's particular field um, afterwards. Um, so. So, yeah. And but, but I do think it's important because a lot of, you know, throughout history, a lot of like young people by today's standards have done great things. Einstein's best year, arguably, was when he was 26. You know, he published like Relativity and other papers in 1905. Um, Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, he published that when he was 26. Um, Paul Samuelson, who's the great economist, who wrote this book called The Foundations of Economic Analysis, which is like a classic economics book. It was based on his dissertation that he did when he was 26. Um, I, I was just looking, Isaac Newton, I was wondering, when, when did Isaac Newton discover calculus? It was in his like early to mid-20s. Um, so it's it's certainly possible for people who are you know under the age of forty, under the age of thirty five, uh, to do great work. And yet we're telling them with the NIH system, you know, if you're twenty four and you have a brilliant idea and you have a lot of talent, 
Um, you can slave away, you know, getting a PhD for the next however many years, six to eight years, possibly do a post, do one or more postdocs for possibly several years. And maybe by the time you're in your late thirties, you know, you're kind of ready to start your career. And then, you know, some talented people are going to say, wait a minute, I could go to any number of other industries, uh, and make a lot more money, a lot more quickly. And, um, you know, not, not face this, this like, you know, monumental hurdle of trying to navigate this, uh, you know, academic ecosystem. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's uh, one way in which I feel like, you know, we, we could do things better. We could make more space for, uh, younger, brilliant people to, to, you know, follow their nose where it leads. That's good. That's good. How much of that, how much do you think, um, how much of the effect of having younger scientists is the fact that they're younger, they have more like maybe it's like fluid intelligence or something going on versus like they just like aren't encumbered with some of like the, you know, I don't know, previously held beliefs when they, when they come mm. to it. And, and it is, it's probably not even important, like distinguishing that. I, I don't know. But do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, that's that. That could be a good point. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, I do think that, um, you know, a lot of great scientific breakthroughs traditionally have come almost by definition, from someone who has an, a, an idea that's that's different or, you know, makes a, a leap forward from what the mainstream in their field is doing. And it, and I say by definition, because, I mean, if if what you're doing in science is the same thing that everyone else is doing, like, that's not a breakthrough, right? <laughs> a breakthrough almost by definition means you, you, you're doing something that's different, that brings in insights from another field. Maybe you've developed a you know, new technology like X-ray crystallography, you know, led people to be able to discover the structure of DNA. Um, you know, all these sorts of ways in which like new ideas and new insights can be brought into a field, but almost by definition, it's, it's something different. So, uh, maybe there's something to the idea that, uh, you know, if, if you're, uh, someone who for whatever reason, including being young is less, you know, kind of in, you know, tied down and encumbered by just the traditional view of the field, you, maybe you have, you haven't already spent, you know, 30 or 40 years building up a reputation for, you know, a particular finding of yours or a particular theory, right? Um, then, then maybe you have a better chance of, of making an advance. Um, I mean, let's take, take the Alzheimer's uh, disease uh, question. So, uh, you know, for many years, the, the focus there has been on the so-called amyloid hypothesis that, you know, that amyloid is this like fibrous material that builds up in the brain and then makes people's brains slow down and ultimately die. Um, and if only we could prevent or, or somehow remove or, or, you know, cure this uh, amyloid problem, then uh, that would that would cure Alzheimer's. And there have been dozens and dozens of clinical trials of drugs that are so that are apparently in some way successful at addressing amyloid, but that don't actually result in they end up not resulting in clinical improvements to like people's ability to think or their lower lifespan. Um, so I would argue that, you know, if you if you want new ideas in the Alzheimer's field, it's probably not going to come from some of the famous scientists who have literally spent the past 30 years saying amyloid is the answer. We know it, we know it, it's going to work this time. Like they, they just have, it's, it's, gonna, it's hard for someone who's like 60, 70 years old and who has made their entire career publishing on one particular hypothesis to suddenly say, all right, I guess I was wrong. I'm, I'm ready to try something new. I mean, people always find ways to dig in. I mean, it's, I guess it's part of our kind of set of cognitive biases that people find ways to, uh, discount new evidence and to say, well, no, I really was right all along. We just haven't tested it in the right way yet. I mean, that's, that's always kind of part of it. So that ar argues that, yeah, finding ways to steer more money to younger people who are, you know, less weighed down by 
the kind of reputational effects they would feel from trying a new idea. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> it it def- definitely sounds helpful. I, I'm, I'm curious what your take is on, uh, it seems like the, the flip side of this coin could be, you, you know, I could come back and say, well, Stuart, maybe it's something like it's gotten so difficult to get to the frontier. It takes you like, you know, until you're 40 to actually get to the frontier of some of these fields. You know, you mentioned something in the outline, which reminded me of this thought I had in, in, in high school. It's like, man, you know, they're teaching us calculus, but 400 years ago, we hadn't even come up with calculus yet. You know what I mean? Right. And, and so, right. so the frontier like keeps getting, you know, and, and are there limits to this? Oh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there may be something to that as well. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, this, this issue is, is really com- complicated when you get down to it. So, um, yeah, I think the the analogy I mentioned to you earlier, or the example I mentioned to you earlier, was that you know in in the early fifties, early forties, you know you could get somewhere in biology by saying I'm I'm going to figure out the structure of DNA. And so when Crick and Watson and also the Rosalind Franklin, who they didn't credit, um, you know, published the the structure of DNA, and I think it was 1953, that's a huge advance, right? Um, today that you can't get anywhere by saying I'm going to figure out the structure of DNA. It's, it's old news, right? You learned it in, in 10th grade biology, right? That's the, the great scientific advance of 70 years ago becomes just kind of a standard textbook material in high school today. You're exactly right. So, so today, if you want to make advances in molecular biology, you've got an additional 70 years of uh, material to learn and, and so that you can figure out where to advance the frontier um, in that field compared to where someone was 70 years ago. So maybe in any given scientific field, it just builds up and builds up over time. And so may, maybe it's possible that, uh, you know, uh, that people come along later, just find it harder to, uh, you know, or, or it takes longer to, to master all the material that they would need to know in order to figure out what could be next. Um, but at the same time, there are lots of uh, new academic fields uh, or new advances that come up. So, you know, 100 years ago, there was really no such thing as genetics or neuroscience or information theory or AI research or, I mean, any number of fields that we now have. Um, so maybe, um, yeah, there, there will be new scientific fields, you know, 50 years from now that someone who's young and brilliant, you know, might be able to come up with the, the you know, germination of a new idea that, that sets off in a, in a new direction. Um, so I think maybe we need to think about it. Making sure there's spaces and, and you know funding for people to kind of explore new directions or, or come up with new ideas for combining new scientific in fi- forming new scientific fields. Got it. I, I'm curious. This question is related to something you said just just a little bit earlier in that piece. It's you know um, have we has is part of what's gone on the fact that we've kind of weeded out the weirdos to some extent. And, and, and that, you know, the people that now can win grants, they're, they're good at sales and, you know, they, they have to be decent at science too. But really what you're selecting for in this kind of evolutionary process is, is can you go out and win grants, not can you, uh, you know, have these like really weird and interesting ideas? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it could be an issue. I mean, there, there are, I guess, some pe- people who would argue that, um, you know, for all the successes that we've had with NIH and NSF, um, and, and other, you know, forms of scientific funding, uh, that maybe we need more space in the world for just like c- completely different alternatives, um, that, that everything now is, has become so standardized and bureaucratized and kind of reduced to, you know, what like bureaucrats can process on, and, uh, you know, it, it, so it's become, 
you know, more difficult to, to really come up with something that's brand new because that, you know, doesn't fit within the confines of, you know, what NIH and NSF are already doing um, or what they view as the, the, the source of science that we fund, you know, at, at, the, at this place. So, um, yeah, I do think there, there could be something to that. And, and that's where I, I hope that, you know, with the recent kind of explosion in philanthropic uh, advances in science. Um, there have been all, all sorts of kind of new scientific efforts that have cropped up in the past few years. Uh, so, someone called it a Cambrian explosion in a way. Um, I hope that they do uh, they, that, that they do this very deliberately. That they um, d don't end up just falling into the trap of uh, you know d doing things uh, in one particular way and saying this is the way. I, I hope that you know throughout that. Uh, new ecosystem of philanthropically supported uh, scientific institutions uh, that there's much more kind of capacity for experimentation and, you know, just trying out new approaches, new ideas, um, new ways of funding people. Um, and that's, I think that's, I think a very hopeful sign and maybe, maybe optimistically, fingers crossed, that could even lead for lead uh, to new political developments that, you know, would result in NIH and NSF, uh, you know, taking new approaches. So, that's good. That this this really good. This, this reminds me of a, a previous guest we had on Don Braben. Do you know Don by any chance? Not personally. I know I know who you're talking about, and I've read his book. So gotcha. Yeah. So so he, he had this idea just for the audience that you know what we should be doing is is go out. You kind of like have this venture investor. Maybe Stuart, you'd be this like science venture investor. You go and interview interesting people, and and you just kind of give them funding. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you ask them, do you have an attack on a problem? They're like, yes, we want to go explore this. Um, and you just kind of let them go out and do it. And this was his approach. He claims to be quite successful at it. Um, what do you think about that kind of approach of just giving people money instead of having them like apply for grants, like just try and have a venture approach to science where, uh, perhaps for basic research, we just go find talented people, give them money to go pursue their interest and, and see what mm -hmm. comes out the other side. Should, should some more of our science funding look like that or at least some percentage? Yeah, I think definitely a larger percentage should look something like that. Um, it, it probably wouldn't work for uh, you know a majority or, or all, let alone all of science because yeah I, I don't know. Then you get into the problem of like how do you know who to trust? Is it's it just going to be some people funding their own friends? And how do you do this at scale? You know, you know, NIH has something like ninety thousand grants at any given point in time. Like, and so and they and they've peer reviewed much much more than that. So how do you yeah you know, how, how do you do something like that at that kind of scale? Um, but, but yeah, I think there's there's definitely a place uh, for that kind of approach. Um, I mean, a lot a lot of top scientists uh, will say uh, in surveys that uh, their approach to their own research or their own research agenda would be different if they had uh, funding like what you're talking about. Um, in fact, there's a Nobel Prize winner that I interviewed on my website, and he said that he thought he would be doing more uh, creative and interesting work if he didn't have to worry about uh, you know pleasing funders. So, I mean, if, if that's what someone who's a tenured Stanford professor who has won a Nobel Prize uh, says about his work, <laughs> that he feels too tied down by the, you know, the, the need to please funders, I mean, imagine how it affects like someone who's 27 and <laughs> has a brilliant idea, but do doesn't have the Nobel Prize to fall back on or the, the tenured you know, Stanford position. So, so yeah, I think that that should be a much bigger uh, part of our scientific ecosystem. Got it. Got it. Uh, going off of that, you know, what do you think like a, a really robust science funding 
ecosystem looks like, perhaps for the United States. You know, if you had to go find like a leverage point to fix things, I, have you like gotten far enough along to kind of draw some big conclusions there or like policy prescription? Well, I mean, so so one policy prescription would or, or or just approach would be that like there's no one right way to to fund science. Like that in fact thinking that there's one right way is part part of the problem. Then we end up forcing everybody into the same box, right? Um so so I guess the 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 main message I would have is that there's no one right way to do things and therefore we should have a broad, diverse portfolio, just as you would if you were like, you know, investing like uh, billions of dollars for like a pension system. You would hopefully diversify, not invest everything in crypto or every or everything <laughs> in treasury bonds. Like, it, you know, it, you need you need, a, you need a wide range of possible approaches because, uh, you know, that 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 alone what's going to help you. Um, you know, kind of maximize your returns because you you have some safe investments, you have some more risky investments that might fail, but that might pay off extraordinarily. I think we should be taking the same kind of portfolio approach uh, across science, and we should be learning from what we do in science and learn in science funding. We should be more deliberately experimenting, uh, trying new things, um, and, and trying as best as we can uh, to measure the the impact of doing things in different ways. Um, and so one, I guess one policy prescription I would have, though, in order to kind of institutionalize uh, this approach to innovation is uh, some, is modeling on something called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Uh, and so that's, a, I don't know if you call it an agency, but it's it's a, like a unit or a team or whatever within uh, uh, Medicare and Medi the Center for Medi Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, and it was set up uh, by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, with funding uh, at a billion dollars a year. And the whole point of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation is to try new ideas that might cut costs for Medicare and Medicaid without harming quality or that might improve quality without without raising costs so that you can bring costs and quality into more alignment. Because um, one of the big problems in medical spending is that you know we pay through the nose and then we don't get that great of results. That could be like population wide, like we're not doing so great in terms of lifespan or out health outcomes. Um, so so the big question in healthcare is like how can we stop spending so much and how can we get better outcomes? So you know you have this massive government bureaucracy that spends you know upwards of a trillion dollars a year. How do you get it to improve? Well, one way was to set up this center for innovation where the whole point is that now you have people whose job it is to think of new ideas and to test test out different ways of, let's say, paying doctors, paying nursing homes, paying hospitals, or measuring their quality, um, and, and then trying to measure and see the effects and see what works. And if something does work, then try to get the rest of the agency, or Medicare and Medicaid, uh, to adopt it. And I think that's a brilliant idea to, you know, to, to have within government agencies is an innovation team um, that that can really specialize in thinking of new ideas, and so I would argue that NIH and NSF uh, and, and others should have an innovation team. Um, again, that's that's solely focused on like how can we experiment, how can we try new ideas, how can we diversify what we're doing, how can we measure what works, um, and focus on what works, and and stop doing things that are overly bureaucratic and, and giving us bad results. So, um, so yeah, that 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 I guess would be the policy prescription. It's not any one particular method of, of doing science, but um, institutionalizing innovation. I think that that would be uh, a really key move forward. I really, I really like that. And I, 
I've had this suspicion, you know, this idea of like, I really like the idea of like having innovation teams within these large bureaucracies that have like license to try more and different things. Um, but I, I do wonder, is there something about the political economy of these bureaucracies where, okay, you know, we set up an innovation team, uh, perhaps you and I are on it, we come up with some weird idea, we come up with a hundred ideas, but one of them's like, you know, it's really weird, but we try it anyway, and mm-hmm. the New York Times gets a hold of it, or some journalist gets a hold of it, and, you know, they're like, hey, this is all this agency's been doing, you know, this is all anyone sees in the press, it goes viral, and then suddenly mm-hmm. we clamp down on the innovation team because it's like, you know, God, you're making you know, Medicare look bad. Is that like right. an endemic problem, or am I just kind of overthinking that process? Well, I mean, I, th- I think that could be a problem, but I think it's an even worse problem with, you know, the existing agencies right now. So so if you go to the, you know, NIH director or NSF director right now and say, hey, I've got like 100 new, or, you know, 50 new ideas for ways you could do things, they would they would tell you basically, look, I'm already overworked as it is. No one in Congress is asking me to do this. If I did try your ideas, like the the best case scenario is that no one pays attention, but probably someone's going to complain. And then then I get called in front of Congress and I'm asked, like, why are you doing this? This wasn't even your job. So, you know, that's uh, that's why innovation sometimes doesn't get very far in government bureaucracy. So but then that's why I think if you have a group of people who have been specifically authorized and given the mission, try crazy things and see if it works. And I mean, now you have an audience for people that are willing to like try try crazy things. And now they have like a statutory mandate um, and they have hopefully some money to do it. Uh, and so that makes it easier for, for them. I mean, it could still get criticized, but uh, at least they have, you know, the authorization and ma- the expectation that that's the sort of thing they're supposed to be doing. So hopefully that would <laughs> uh, raise the chances of working out. Definitely. Definitely. I love that. And and how do you think about trying to implement like policy ideas like that? Is it like, you know, kind of like Alex Stapps and Caleb's, uh, you know, Institute for Progress model where you maybe you try to use the secret Congress or something. You go to D.C. Mm-hmm. and like lobby the agencies. Is it like, you know, calling your congressperson? Like, like where are the good leverage points here? I, and you might not be comfortable talking about them and that's fine. But I, I'm just curious in general, like, like how you think about that. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's probably a long, slow road, no matter what. I mean, so recently there, there was a, a health version of ARPA that, that got launched. Ar- ARPA-H is what it's called. Um, and that's exciting new innovation within uh, health funding. Um, but it took several years. I mean, it, it people were talking about that, that idea at least since 2017. Actually, since then, um, there's a guy named Robert Cook Deegan, who's at uh, Arizona State, um, who... It, I, I found out, he told me that he uh, he wrote an article arguing that there should be a health version of DARPA. He wrote this in 1997, but no one really paid attention to it. And so the idea languished out there. And then pe- other people independently came up with the idea in 20, around 2016, 2017. Um, so, so yeah, they, I mean, they, they started arguing for it and writing articles about it. And, um, you know, I mean, at some point it has to cross over into like interaction with the the folks at the White House who got behind it and and so forth. Um, and then ultimately into legislation and appropriations. Um, so, you know, it took several years. And if you want to go back to 1997, it took 25 years uh, for that idea to become reality. Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's a long, slow process to get this kind of innovation. But I, I also think it's super important because, um, you know, the NIH alone is spending over $40 billion every single year. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like 
the saying that, you know, what's the best time to plant a tree, you know, a hundred years ago or today, right? Yeah, sure. It'd be nice if you planted a tree a hundred years ago and it was like a, a thriving, you know, huge tree that provides shade and so forth. But there's no, if you haven't planted it, then you might as well start now. Right? So, um, so the field, the working on policy change for these big institutions, um, you know, probably does take some time, but all the more reason to get started. And hopefully five or 10 years from now, um, there will be, uh, you know, a set of sets of policy proposals. There will be politicians, you know, maybe presidents and white houses that are interested in taking them up. I mean, it's very hard to predict and, you know, you have to be opportunistic when the chance arises, but, um, you know, all the more reason to, to, to start arguing for these things and making the case and putting the proposals out there today. And do you think, do you see that kind of as your main role is, you know, putting these ideas out into the ether, having policy proposals ready to go and, and all these things like, so that they are set up. So when the chance arises, you can like kind of, you know, help encourage like good policy to yeah. be, be written. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say that's, that's one of the, the main purposes of a good science project. Yeah, totally that's agree. Good. That's good. Um, I, how, and th th there's a risk in asking this type of question because, you know, you've got to work for these people, but, but how, how competent do you see is the, the federal government, like the funding bureaucracy? Are they like really competent, competent people just stuck in like bad incentive systems? Are they not competent people mm. setting good incentive systems? Like some mix of the, of the two? Probably, yeah, probably some mix of the two. I mean, yeah, I mean. So, so a lot of the scientific agencies like NIH and CDC and FDA have come under a lot of criticism um, lately for, for being slow in responding to COVID and for any number of reasons, right? Um, but, you know, even though there's a lot of validity to those criticisms and even though there's lots of ways you can point to, you know, things that can be improved, I mean, on an individual basis, like if you, you know, talk to, talk to people who work at those agencies, I mean, you get the feeling that, you know, these are smart, competent people who are doing, trying to do the best they know how to do within a system that, you know, most of which is beyond their control. So I think, that, I think that's probably true for, for the vast majority of, of public servants, uh, and, you know, people that work at federal agencies, you know, they're, they're showing up to work, they're doing what they can do. They oftentimes might sympathize with, you know, trying new ways of doing things, uh, but they don't have the time. They don't have the mission uh, or the yeah, mandate to to do that. So, uh, so they 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 themselves might end up being a little frustrated uh, by their inability to change the overall system. And so, I think that that's in a way, you know, ho hopefully one way that outsiders, you know, like like think tanks or advocacy groups, hopefully one way they can be helpful is to, in some ways, like provide a little pressure, a little you know, outside pressure that. Uh, you know, people who are sympathetic within the agencies will say, all right, now I can point to that. You know, there are outside groups saying that we should do X, Y, or Z, you know, so maybe we should, we should try things that way. Right. So that's, that's another way that, um, you know, kind of policy change can happen. That's good. That's good. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious, we talked a lot about, you know, government funding science. Um, I want to talk about, you know, corporations funding science. We used to have these great kind of big, you know, innovation labs, Bell Labs. I, I think about all these, uh, you know, Xerox Park. Uh, a lot of these innovations came out of these kind of basic research labs at large corporations. Mm -hmm. And we do have like, you know, FANG companies have a lot of research labs, a lot of AI labs in particular, um, which do mm -hmm. seem to be creating innovations. But it doesn't seem to be at the same scale, at least to me. 
Uh, is it your mm-hmm. sense that uh, corporate innovation labs like don't work as well now? Do they work as well, but they're just not as publicized? What do you think is going on there? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I do think that, you know, like, like Bell Labs, I think they, they benefited in one way from having this, uh, from ba- basically being associated with AT&T that had this nationwide telephone monopoly. So they're making all this money because they're a na- nationwide monopoly. And so they don't have to worry about, at, at that point, like they hadn't been broken up because it wasn't the 80s yet. But um, they, so they don't have to worry about money. Like they've got more money than they know what to do with. They don't have to worry about like selling a product this year or that the next year. Um, so they had the freedom. And they also, uh, I think probably at the time, AT&T felt maybe some political pressure to like show that we're doing something good. You know, we're not just a monop- nationwide monopolist that's taking advantage of people, but look, look at what we're doing with our science. Right. So there, there could have been part of that as well. And, and so anyway, you, you had a group of people at Bell Labs who um, were working on problems that in some way touched upon like you know, telephone communications. Um, so that touched upon like transistors or information theory and so forth and so on. Uh, but had the flexibility and the freedom uh, to to do what they wanted without the pressure to to publish or without the pressure to, you know, produce something that, that is a marketable product, you know, like now, like they, had, they had the more intellectual freedom than that. So, um, and they might have benefited as well, from, from possibly from you know some of these discoveries, perhaps being a little more low hanging fruit compared to uh, you know today. Like you know, inventing the transistor in the first place was a great innovation. Um, you know, at a, at a certain point, like you know, we're trying to cram more and more transistors into smaller and smaller spaces. So at some point you hit a kind of limit as to what anybody can do there. And it maybe it becomes harder to, to truly innovate. So maybe, you know, you have to come up with new questions, new ideas, new, new, new fields of innovation and so forth. Um, but yeah, the results, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, so like Google has, I mean, it used to be called Google X, but since they switched their corporate name to alphabet, now it's just called X. Um, and they have a big campus where they, they do all kinds of projects, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm not, I guess I'm just not really sure what they've been doing um, or why. Uh, so, um, or what what the outputs have been, and and maybe they, maybe they're doing great stuff, and they're just yeah. I, I'm just not aware of it. So yeah, that's yeah. I'm not not really sure what else to say. <laughs> yeah, it may, maybe unclear as well. It, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Stuart, uh, are you down for a round of overrated or underrated? Sure. Yeah. I uh, can't guarantee I have any great <laughs> answers, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Stuart, I'll, I'll throw out a term. Um, you tell me whether it's overrated, underrated, properly rated, right. and um, and perhaps why. Um, so the first sure. one is flamenco, and I may have pronounced that, butchered that pronunciation, guitars. Flamenco guitars. And that's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like probably for a lot of people, they aren't rated at all. Like Probably a lot of people don't even think about it very much. <laughs> but, um, you know, probably amongst classical guitarists, um, they might in some ways like look down on flamenco as like, you know, a, a little too like kind of flashy and not as like pristine as in, as in musical terms or whatever. Uh, so maybe underrated from that perspective. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. And, you know, so you were trained as a classical guitarist, correct? Uh, yes. d- does yes. any of that work, you know, carry through today at all in, in what you do? And what I do, I mean, Hmm. No, not in any direct sense. I mean, uh, I, I, 
actually, I recorded this uh, classical guitar album uh, about 12 years ago, and uh, it still makes money on Spotify <laughs> somehow. Awesome. Like Spotify will send me like a direct deposit of, you know, sometimes $100, $150 in a month. Um, and I, I just looked and I, to my complete astonishment realized that um, the the top track on that album has been streamed over 7 million times on wow. Spotify. So I'm completely amazed by that. But I guess that explains where the money's coming from. So I can't complain. That's cool. That's cool. Um, Houston, Texas, overrated or underrated? Um probably underrated i mean there 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 are lots of reasons to to dislike houston i mean it's 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 flat there's not a lot of you know like it's not like you know a lot of gorgeous scenery there's no redwood forests or mountains or you know anything like that um it's hot and humid um the whole the whole place the whole landscape you know naturally you know wants to be a swamp and so there's like just like swampy areas everywhere and then lots and lots of drainage systems that are you know, built to to drain water out to the gulf um i mean it is one of those places where you think my god how did why did people ever decide to live here when they, they hadn't invented air conditioning yet um but i guess because of the you know availability of, of ports in the gulf and so forth but um so the, so yeah i mean there's, there there are ways in which it's underrated but it's a bustling economy it's it's extraordinarily diverse i think one of the most diverse cities in uh the nation so you have lots and lots of people from around the world that come to houston because it's easy to to buy a home or to to find a job and so that makes it a kind of diverse and uh a place with a lot of vitality in that way so so yeah, there's a, there's a lot going, there's a lot, uh, there are lots of ways to like kind of live a good life in Houston if you don't mind the heat. <laughs> it's a good deal. It's a good deal. New yeah. science, Alexi Guzzi's new science, overrated or underrated? That's interesting. So um, maybe, cor- I mean, can I say correctly rated? Sure, I mean, I think, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's, it's a very ambitious idea. I mean, I've heard Alexi say, you know, his ambition is to, you know, form a new NIH, which is, I mean, if you think about it, that's astonishingly ambitious because, you know, NIH, as I said, 90,000 grants, 40 plus billion a year. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, it, it, it probably, that doesn't seem likely. I mean, but yeah, if, if you can direct enough philanthropic funding or perhaps, I don't know, perhaps over time funding from elsewhere, maybe funding from industry, I'm not sure, um, into, you know, giving scientists, uh, training up scientists and giving them more freedom and flexibility, like some of the ideas we were talking about earlier. Um, I, I think that that has a, a lot of potential. That's good. That's good. Um, EA's funding academic research. Is that underrated or overrated? I think to, to uh, no, I, you, you must pick up on that because I wrote about that recently. So, That's right. um, I think it's something that to me has been underrated or underprovided and it, uh, maybe that's the better way of putting it. But um, I feel like that a, a lot of effective altruists, um, particularly on the, the kind of global health and development side of things um, have maybe arguably gotten a little bit stagnant in their approach to giving. And, and I mean, it, it's like they, they've been talking about malaria and bed nets and deworming pills and, you know, a few very discreet interventions that uh, they value because there's there's been a lot of evidence that they work. Um, but I feel like the, the scope and scale of all the problems that humanity deals with, 
seems seems a lot broader than just like you know three or four interventions that where you have the absolute best evidence. Um, I feel like that there there needs to be a bigger and broader push to come up with new ideas, new innovations, new new interventions, new programs, new policies, um, and and to develop more evidence and have a kind of R and D process uh, that that's in a laid out in a systematic, you know, coherent agenda. Um, and that directs a lot of money into finding the next list of, of interventions and ideas that would uh, be tremendously valuable uh, to the developing world. That's great. That's great. Well, Stuart, um, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Sure. I'm on Twitter at, uh, well, it's twitter.com at StuartBuck1. Um, so the number one. And uh, then uh, also goodscienceproject.org. So excellent. Excellent. We'll send people there. We'll put a link down in the show notes. Thanks so much, Stuart. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.